Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Verse 6 through 11. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. And um, if you're new this morning, welcome. Uh, You're catching the last of a seven uh, seven sermon series on, on rest. Um, before we dive in, though, um, I want to let you know that next week we are starting a new series. We are going to take five weeks, and we are going to talk about money, uh, one of your favorite topics. I thought we'd have a little bit of fun with it. Uh, we're calling the series Get Greedy. Um, seems appropriate. Um, we are in a season of tremendous opportunity um, here and, and honestly of tremendous challenge. And, and we've talked a lot about this, but just kind of give you a picture. Um, we are not yet with the slinky. Thank you. Uh, we are <laughs> the challenge. Um, we are, we are facing, um, the loss of our space. Um, and that's something we've talked about quite a bit. And, uh, that could happen any time within the next week. Um, not that we'll lose it in a week, but we'll get our notice. And once we get our notice, we have 30 days. And so it could happen anytime from the next week to probably within the next two and a half months. Um, and so we're, we're, we're facing some, some transition things. We're still praying about it. The Lord can obviously still intervene and uh, protect our space, but that's kind of what we're looking at. So you can pray with me about that. I would love for it to happen, honestly, either at the beginning of November or wait till January or later. Um, Trying to do that in the month of December will be uh, not pleasant, okay? And so pray with me about that. Um, We are in the process of negotiating with a local church. Um, They want to move out of town. They want to sell their building. We're negotiating with them about possibly purchasing their building. We've talked all about that. Um, It's it's First Pres, and it's... um, it's literally, I don't know, half a mile from here. I mean, it's, it's right in the area we want to be, and, and we're in the process of praying through that and having discussions about that. Um, combine that with the fact that we're a young congregation, that we, we have a lot of singles, we have a lot of young marrieds that are just starting the career curve and, and having kids. We don't have a lot of people at the, at the, uh, the far end of the career curve, you know, where they've, they've, they're, they're making the most they're probably going to make, and they have the least amount of liabilities they're probably going to have. We don't have a lot of those folks, and so we're, we're dealing with a lot of challenges. And so I'm going to be upfront um, about this. We, we as a congregation need to talk about money. We don't know exactly what God is bringing, but we do know that God is telling us that it's time for us to prepare. We need to get ready. And, uh, and so we're going to spend some time with everyone's favorite topic, money. And I know if you're brand new, you're like, great, this was a good time to show up. Well, I want to, you know, just to remind you, the reality is money is, is an important thing for us to talk about at all times. Jesus talked more about money than he talked about love. Jesus talked more about money than he talked about heaven and hell combined. Because money has a unique way of attacking our hearts. And the way we, we deal with our money um, both tells us a lot about our hearts and honestly, 
shapes our hearts. So if we're going to talk about money, the reality is we're going to have to talk about things that are way more important than money. And that's kind of the point. That's why I named our series Get Greedy, because if we get greedy for the right things, it's going to free us from being greedy for the wrong things. If we get greedy for things that are truly valuable, it's going to allow us to live our lives with the right kind of perspective so that we live in freedom and not in slavery. And so I want you to join us um, starting next week. It's a five-week series. If you are a member or regular attender, uh, I am going to ask you to do your best to be here um, over the course of these next five weeks. I know that, that a lot of times we're in and out and, and, and the rest of that. If, if you have the ability to be here um, for these services over the next five weeks, I am going to encourage you to do so because it is, uh, it is that important. All right, deep breaths. Do you guys ever play with slinkies when you were little? Some of you are jealous right now. These things are incredible. I mean, they really are fun, and I, and I had to work to find a metal one. They're all the cheap plastic ones now. Um, but I used to love these things. There's something fascinating about the way these things move, right? And honestly, for me, something that's kind of calming, you know? I mean, they're just kind of, of restful. And when, when they first came out, they were actually marketed that way. They were marketed as being fun, but they were also marketed as, as being relaxing, something that you could pick up and play with that would actually help you ease the tension and just relax. And I think it has something to do with the spring tension, you know? I mean, it's just this latent energy. When you let it sit and rest, it just, uh, I don't know, it moves so easily. It bounces, it stretches, and then it goes back into shape, you know? I mean, it, it's, it has resiliency. It has resiliency. And so it doesn't matter. I mean, you can, obviously, you can abuse them too much, but um, the thing always bounces back. So you can put it under stress. And when you're done, um, it still works, well, as good as new. You guys remember when your life was like that? Can you remember a time when, when your life was playful? Rested? Kind of, you know, shh. A little stress can come in now and then, but you bounce back. You're ready. You're not crushed. You're not exhausted. Some of you are going to have to think way back, <laughs> like possibly before middle school, right? Um, man, it's been a long time since my life was like that. But there was a time when life had more to do with possibility than escape, right? And the reality of us is that most of us wish our lives could be like that. Again, the problem is that our lives just get more and more crowded with stress, more and more crowded with things to do, the stress of productivity, of responsibility, of emotional turbulence, of demands, and we just get more and more stretched. Taylor Clark wrote um, an article in Slate. Um, the article was entitled, it's, it's Not the Job Market. The Real Reasons Why Americans Are More Anxious Than Ever Before. Fascinating article. I want to read you um, a section of it, okay? Uh, uh, Clark says this, Over the last several decades, both through good economic times and bad, the United States has transformed into the planet's undisputed worry champion. Around the turn of the millennium, anxiety flew past depression as the most prominent mental health issue in America and it's never looked back. With more than 18% of adults suffering from an anxiety disorder in any given year, the United States is now 
the most anxious nation in the world, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. Stress-related ailments cost the nation $300 billion every year in medical bills and lost productivity, while our usage of sedative drugs keeps skyrocketing. Just between 1997 and 2004, Americans more than doubled their spending on anti-anxiety medications like Xanax and Valium, from $900 million to $2.1 billion. And this anxious strain hits us well before we reach college. Now, this, this next quote grabbed me, so I wanted to throw this on the screen. As psychologist Robert Leahy points out, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. It's kind of hard to believe, truthfully. But all you have to do is look around, and you know it's true. All you have to do is look at your own life, and you know it's true. America is the most stressed out nation in the world, which is kind of ironic because the reality is our standard of living is incredibly high. We, we don't struggle every day with, with basic issues like, do I have clean water? Will I have food today, right? In my recent visit to Kyrgyzstan, I stayed with a host family, and, and one night the cow didn't come home. Right? So the next morning, we had no milk products for breakfast. Right? I mean, it was just, you, you, you live a very different kind of life. We don't struggle with those things. The reality is, we struggle with whether or not our dishwasher gets our dishes clean enough. Right? We struggle with whether or not our clean water tastes pleasant enough. We struggle with whether or not our food is interesting enough to post on Instagram. Right? All right, the article goes on. Listen to this. The article goes on. According to a 2002... World Mental Health Survey, people in developing world countries such as Nigeria, now pay attention to what we're comparing to, people in developing world countries such as Nigeria are up to five times less likely to show clinically significant anxiety levels than Americans, despite having more basic life necessities to worry about. What's more, when these less anxious developing world citizens emigrate to the United States, they tend to get just as anxious as Americans. There's something wrong with us. There is something systemically wrong with our culture, the way we do life as Americans. There are beautiful things about our culture. There are very good things about our culture. There are some things about our culture that are killing us. We are living lives that rob us of resiliency. Our ability to bounce back from stress diminishes with the increased stress of life. The more stress you're under, the less ability you have to bounce back. I mean, think about the slinky again, you guys. The more stress you put on the strings, the less ability it has to be resilient, to bounce back. I mean, think about it. Grab that. Just hold it. Okay. All right, you start off as a kid, but as you get older, you move into middle school and suddenly you have to pay attention to your grades, right? Because you know the job market is incredibly competitive and we have an incredibly competitive educational system. By the time you reach high school, you're worried about whether or not you're actually getting college credits, right? You add that to the emotional stress that we get 
from families that are disintegrating, the stress of the emotional wear and tear of families that simply are not sticking together. They look good in public, but they're falling apart in private. You add to that the ongoing stress of college choice and then dating and, oh my goodness, I've got to marry somebody. And then pretty soon you have to think about kids. Huh, kids. Yes, they just suck the life out of you, right? They take all your time, all your energy, all your resources. Pretty soon you are stretched to the max. You're thinking about whether or not you're going to be able to pay your bills. You're worried about whether or not you're going to find success. You're worried about what your kids will look like in public and whether or not their clothes will stay on while you're in the grocery store, right? And then something happens. Stress comes in. And when the stress comes in, you don't have the resiliency to absorb it. And what happens? You're stretched. You have zero resiliency in life. So what's our solution? What do we do about this? We take a vacation. (laughs) That's our solution. This is my life. What am I going to do about that? I'll take a week off. Some of you are like, I wish I could take a week off. Some of you are like, I want an afternoon off, right? Some of you moms are like, I just hide in the bathroom and stick a blanket over my head. <laughs> you know, it's true. If I could just get a moment to myself. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We get so stretched that we simply can't stretch anymore. So we do what we think we need to do to try to restore some bounce back to our lives a day off, a vacation, but we don't bounce back. You guys know that, right? You, you go on your vacation, you get a little bit of escape, those of you who are able to go on vacation. How's it feel the Monday when you come back? Worse than ever. <laughs> Worse than ever. Because you're coming back and you're not, you don't have any more bounce than when you left. You just escape from the stress for a little while. So when you get back in that situation and you restretch, it's just that much more painful, Right? So you start dreaming about another day away, another week away, and some of you honestly right now are tempted to take your entire life away, to walk away, to walk away from your family, to walk away from the stress, to walk away from your job, thinking that somehow if you can just start a new life, you'll get a clean slate. If I can just get a new wife, if I can just get new kids, if I can just get a new job, if I can just get a new place, if I can just get out of this. The problem is you take yourself with you. And when you take yourself with you, you take the pain with you as well. I'm not against vacations. I'm for them. And and sometimes they're actually necessary to get breaks. They're not the solution, though. They don't restore resiliency. And that's why, you guys, we need Sabbath rest. We don't need a day off. We don't need a vacation. We, We need what the Bible promises us when it talks about Sabbath, this idea of deep soul rest. Over the last six weeks, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about how we enter into this rest with God. And we've been unpacking this simple idea. True deep rest comes from a life-giving, vibrant relationship with God, right? Not, Not just being a Christian, not just going to church. We're talking about a deep, real, life-giving relationship with God. 
one in which you are, in fact, enjoying the presence of God and delighting in God's enjoyment of you, right? You are resting in His love and His delight of you because of the work of Christ on your behalf. We find real rest from our work when we truly rest in His work. When we recognize that Christ has won for us on the cross and in His resurrection, everything we can't win for ourselves, acceptance, love, forgiveness, a new start, a new identity. When we rest in that, He gives us a deep kind of rest that actually restores resiliency. So today we're going to be wrapping up our series. I'm not going to go back and re-preach the previous six messages, but we are going to wrap up this series by looking uh, very practically at how we can build rhythms of rest into our lives, okay? How we can actually very practically take steps that enable us to renew our resiliency, to, to get the bounce back, in a sense, in our lives. Now, the passage we read in Hebrews makes a couple um, important points. The first is that Sabbath rest is not um, optional. When you read Hebrews 4, it becomes very, very clear that God isn't just offering Sabbath rest if you want it. He is offering Sabbath rest because you need it. And if you don't enter into Sabbath rest, it's actually because of, of disbelief. You don't believe in God, and you don't believe His promises. And so you're trying to find rest in everything that isn't God instead of coming to Him for what He promises to give. And in fact, Hebrews 4 is an exploration, Hebrews 3 and 4 is an exploration of how the Israelites didn't enter into the rest, the Sabbath rest that God had promised them. And it says it was because of disobedience. Now, when it says that, it's not talking about the fact that they broke some rules or they didn't obey the, the certain commandments. It was the disobedience of unbelief. They didn't believe God. And because they didn't believe God, they didn't want to obey God. They didn't want to follow God. Deep rest comes from trusting God, resting in the fact that He is good and that He is um, the giver of good gifts and, and that we can rest in who He is and what He's done for us. This rest comes from resting in God and, and resting in who God says we are because of the work of Christ. No longer trying to establish our identity outside of Christ, but actually resting in who He says we are because of the work of Christ. I don't have to prove my, my worth. I'm worthwhile because I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ. I don't, have to, I don't have to work for your acceptance. I'm accepted by the God of the universe. I don't have to live for, for um, gaining my own comfort and protecting my own pleasure because God is the giver of all good things. He is the source of all that is pleasurable, and He promises me as I simply come in line with Him, that He will release more pleasure, more comfort in my life than I can ever gain by, by fighting for my own comfort and, and trying to keep, build my own, my own kingdom, right? We, we come to rest in who God is and, and who He says we are. So verse 11 is an interesting verse, and I want to highlight this verse, because in verse 11, the writer of Hebrews says this, "...let us therefore strive to enter that rest." so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, the the disobedience demonstrated previously by the Israelites who didn't enter the rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The word strive means to labor diligently. It's a really weird statement. Let us labor diligently to enter rest. In other words, you've got to work hard if you're actually going to rest. See, we think of rest 
as taking time off of work. We think of a day off. That's what we call, you know, our, maybe our Sabbath. It's our day off. It's our day where I stop working. It's my day where I disengage. It's my day where I, I escape the, the pressure. But the point of Sabbath isn't about escaping. The point of Sabbath is not eliminating work. It's working in the right way. It's working toward the right thing. Sabbath comes to those who are intentional. It is not accidental. True Sabbath rest comes to those who are intentional about pursuing it. You have to want it enough to work for it. So what does it look like to work to rest? What does it look like to labor diligently to enter into that rest? Is that even possible? We have to understand what real rest is, and we have to understand how we actually engage it if we're going to to gain it. So we've already established real rest doesn't come from doing nothing. (laughs) Real rest doesn't come from stopping activities like work or other things that seem to drain you, getting away from your kids, taking a break, a day off, right? Real rest doesn't come from not working. Real rest comes from working to enter into the rest that God has given us. Real rest comes from renewing our delight in God and renewing our awareness of God's delight in us. You guys, we know this. True rest always comes from an experience of love. Resiliency in our lives always comes from an experience of love. You know this. That's why we know this intuitively, in a sense. When we're in love with someone, we want to be with them. Life is easier when we're with them. When we are able to spend time with them, the pain is less painful. The joy is more joyful because it gives us the ability to have resilience. But here's the thing. There's no earthly relationship that can meet the deepest needs of your soul because you were created for relationship with God. We have to work to renew our awareness of God's delight in us because of the work of Christ. The fact that Jesus died for me in my place is my substitute. He took everything that was wrong about me. He took all of my sin, all of my offenses, And he paid the price fully. And when he went into the grave, my sin was left on the cross. And when he rose again, he rose again, a new identity for me. I am now a son of God, approved and loved, covered with the very righteousness of Christ because I have trusted in the finished work of Christ. And when I stand in that identity and renew my awareness of who I am in Christ, nothing restores resiliency like that because love always unleashes joy. There's nothing like delight to restore your soul. It's like a married couple. Some of us are like that in our relationship with God, a married couple that that we have forgotten how to delight in one another. In fact, anyone who's married has gone through a season where you've probably had to struggle through this, right? You have forgotten what it means to delight in your spouse, and you have forgotten what it means to to take joy in their delight of you. And, And the farther that delight gets away, the more tension builds in the relationship, the more resentment comes in, the more difficulty comes in. What's the solution for a marriage that's in crisis like that? Time away? Potentially, if the resentment has grown to the point where it's absolutely painful, if there's abuse that has crept in as a result of, of 
misappropriating roles or whatever. Yes, separation sometimes is essential, but separation is not the solution. Separation is a means to the solution. The solution is learning how to once again take joy in one another and to take joy in the other person's delight in you. We have to do that with God. How do we do that? How do we work to renew our joy? Well, Jesus himself tells us. When Jesus was um, talking to his disciples, he said this in Matthew 11. I'll put the verses up on the screen. It says, Come to me, all who, are la- all who labor and are heavy laden. Pause for a minute. <laughs> I think that's a perfect description of Americans. People who labor, we work very hard, and we are heavy laden, which means that we, we carry a very heavy load on our backs, a load of stress, a load of pressure, a load of expectations, a load of needing to perform. Come to me, all who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." couple things that I, that I want you to notice just from this. There's so much I could unpack here, but first of all, he, he mentions rest in two different ways. First, he mentions it as a gift. Come to me, all who, are, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a gift. It's his possession. He gives it to us. It is complete in and of itself, right? He gives you absolute deep rest, what you actually need. But it's a gift that we need to discover. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, you will find rest. There is a sense in which it is a gift that He gives to us. There's another sense in which it is a gift we have to discover. We have to labor to enter into it. it, Basically, it's already ours because of the work of Christ, but it's not ours in experience until we work to experience it. It's ours because of the work of Christ. We don't earn it by our behavior, but our behavior can keep us from actually enjoying it experiencing it. So it is a gift that is ours because of the work of Christ, but we have to learn how to work to discover it, to find it. Not work to perform to earn it, but work to actually experience it because our behavior will either allow us to enter into it or miss it. The other thing I want you to notice is that this rest comes from relationship, right? He says, come to me, yoke yourself to me. A yoke was a, uh, a harness that was used for two animals, like a, two oxen, two, two animals that were laboring together. And what it did is it bound those two um, animals together in such a way that their effort was, was united, right? They had to come together in unity. It was, it was a, a bond of relationship. And, it, and here it's a metaphor of, of relating to God, but it's also a metaphor of submitting to God. Because when we take the yoke of Christ, He's the leader, and we're the follower. It means that there's a sense in which we need to come in faith, and out of that faith, willing to follow, willing to let Him take the lead, willing to let Him be the boss. (laughs) And that's the rub, isn't it? We don't like that. As Americans, we don't want anyone's yoke. Submission is a bad word for us. To talk about submitting, it sounds degrading, humiliating. Who wants to submit? 
That, that word is, is, has lost all of its dignity in our culture. And it is full of dignity and beauty, by the way. But in our culture, we have robbed it of that experience because for us, it is, it is um, humiliating to not be autonomous, humiliating not to, to be the captain of your own ship, the master of your own fate. We don't like that. Andrew Murray, in discussing this passage, said something that really grabbed my attention. He said, it's not the yoke, but resistance to the yoke that causes our difficulty. It's not the yoke, but our resistance to the yoke that causes our difficulty. When we actually come in submission, when we actually get to that point where we're broken, and we come to God and we're like, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to lead you. You're going to tell a better story for my life than I would tell for myself, so I will submit myself to you, trusting that you will, in fact, tell that story. When we get to that point, the yoke is light, and the yoke is easy, because Christ is, as He says, lowly in heart and gentle. He's not a slave master. He doesn't simply give us rules to punish us or to control us. or to... He is the giver of good gifts. He is one that leads us to life. Most of our difficulty comes in the stage before that when we are resisting the yoke, when we're like, I don't know if I trust you to tell a better story for me than I will tell for myself. I don't know if I trust you enough to submit to you. I don't know if I even like submission. See, we kind of think that, that the choice is this. I either put on the yoke of Christ or I don't wear a yoke. That's how we think about it. We think I either get to wear my own yoke and yoke myself to nothing or I yoke myself to God. And I want you to see that that is in fact a false paradigm. We're always yoked to something, but by God's grace, we get to choose what we'll be yoked to. We're never free of a yoke. The Jews understood this. When the Jews read this or heard Jesus say this, they understood because they had this concept in their mind, the Jews were yoked to the law. In the Old Testament, there were all these commandments, and you had to perform in all these ways to be accepted by the community and, and ultimately accepted by God. That was their perception of it. So they were yoked to this law, and that law was an incredibly burdensome yoke. When you put on that yoke, it weighed you down. It drug you down because it gave you commands but gave you no ability to obey. So all it did was condemn. That was an incredibly heavy yoke. And what Jesus is saying to them is, look, I've got a better yoke, a yoke of grace. I've got a yoke of love. I've got a yoke of relationship. It's not about your performance for me. It's about you resting in my performance for you. But I want you to see we wear a yoke as well. We don't yoke ourselves to the Mosaic law. That's not our culture. We yoke ourselves to whatever it is we're looking to, to do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only God can be. We yoke ourselves to our performance, to our jobs, to our relationships, to how our kids are perceived in public, to, to our bank accounts, to our technology. We always yoke ourselves to something. And those yokes drag us down, sap our energy, rob us of rest. This whole series essentially has been about this very point, that when we yoke ourselves to God, we are freed. When we don't, we yoke ourselves to our idols. Our idols are those things that we look to to be God for us or to do for us what only God can do. 
And those are the, really the only two choices. We will ultimately follow something, looking to get what we can't provide for ourselves. We submit to them. Our idols lead us to slavery. You become a slave to your job. You become a slave to your image. You become a slave to how people think of you. You become a slave to your bank account. You become a slave to your technology. You become a slave to your entertainment. You become a slave to your distractions. When you, when you yoke yourself to Christ, you are, in fact, freed from that slavery. And that's why we have to learn to repent. We talked about that, the gift of repentance, that God, in fact, gives us the gift of repentance. Repentance isn't this ugly thing, this religious word that's this dark thing. Repentance, very simply, is turning away from death back to life. When God gives us the ability to recognize what I'm tying myself to is killing me, and I would much rather tie myself to what gives me life, and by grace, I can. So I want to give you a practical tool as we kind of wrap this thing up. I want to give you a practical tool that's going to help you look at your life and help you when it comes to working to enter into that rest. How do you make practical daily choices that will in fact free you into God's delight, your delight of God, your delight in God's delight of you, instead of in slavery to your, your idols? Because the real, in the end, the real issue is, is whether or not we're going to, uh, to make choices that lead us to it. Now, here's the deal. I want you to catch this. We're talking about Sabbath, and I want to clarify something. When I'm talking about Sabbath, I'm talking about a way of approaching life, not just a day in the week. Some of you, the word Sabbath is, has never been part of your religious tradition. For others of you, you come out of religious traditions where they made a big deal about the Sabbath, and they said it's a single day where you're not allowed to do any work. Both of those missed the point. So, yes, is the Sabbath a day? Do I believe that you have to take a daily Sabbath every week? I don't. I think that daily Sabbath was the Old Testament daily Sabbath, that Saturday that you had to rest from work, was a foreshadowing of the greater rest that was going to come in Christ. Now, having said that, do I think it's a good idea to take a weekly Sabbath? (laughs) Yes. And if you can't take a day off once a week, as Mark Driscoll says, you're doing something in your life that God is not asking you to do. Everybody should be able to take a day and devote it to Sabbath. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I'm a full-time mom. How do I get a day off? Is Sabbath a day off? No, you're thinking about it wrong. If you think it's a day off, that's a day I have to get away from my kids, then yeah, you may not be able to do it. We're not talking about a day where you get away from your responsibilities. We're talking about a day that you are devoting to renewing your delight in God. It's not about a day off. It's about an intentional day in which you are putting things in practice that help remind you of who God is and how much He loves you and who you are because of His love for you. And it's going to look different for, for different people at different stages in their life. It's going to look different for a, a, a new dad who is starting at the beginning arc of his career where he has to put in extra hours to to prove himself, a mom balancing work and kids or, or possibly learning how to be a stay-at-home mom, which is a full-time, obviously, endeavor, a single parent who's balancing all of the above because they don't have somebody else to help care the workload. I'm not giving you this to condemn you. I'm not giving you this to make you feel guilty about not doing enough work. I'm giving you, giving you this to you to be a practical tool to help you 
Renew your delight in God. Renew your delight in who He is and who He says you are. All right, so I want to show you this, this, uh, this tool. Go ahead and throw it up there. Um, this is an adaptation of, uh, this, is, this is not from the Bible. Um, it is from, from some pretty smart guys. This is an adaptation of something that I picked up from, from Stephen Covey, who is a, uh, a time management specialist. Um, what I loved about this is that it really has less to do with time management and more about how we are intentional with the time we have to manage. And so I want, I want to just explain this graph to you very quickly. You have four quadrants on the graph. Um, the upper quadrants are things that are truly important. The things in the lower quadrants are things that are not important. They may seem like they are, but they're actually not. On the other hand, the things in the left column are things that are urgent. And by urgent, what I mean is they feel urgent, right? There's something about them that just provokes you to action. In the right column are things that are not urgent. There's nothing in them that provokes you to action, okay? And so in these four quadrants, we actually find uh, a description of almost all of our behavior. And if we're going to work diligently to enter into that rest, we have to learn how to be intentional with our behaviors. So let's kind of go through this and let's talk about these four quadrants. The first is, is the quadrant of productivity. Now, the quadrant of productivity is in the, the upper left, these are things that are urgent and important, okay? So, so these are going to be things like survival, right? Survival is urgent and it's important. Things that deal with survival, food, clothing, bills, right? Work deadlines are urgent and important. If I don't, if I don't meet work deadlines, I may get fired, right? If I don't feed my kids they're going to not be happy, right? Um, if I don't, right, work deadlines, however you define your work, whatever your work is, these are things that have to be done. They become very urgent and they are very important, right? Um, crisis, when things come up, that stress, that immediate unforeseen stress steps in. There are times when those things are urgent and important, right? Like if a fire breaks out in your kitchen, you better put it out. You need to make time for that, Right? Grab the fire extinguisher, put it out. But I'm on Sabbath. I, those are things that are important, okay? When a crisis comes up, you have to deal with it. So this is the quadrant of genuine productivity. These are things that you have to do, and they're things that you should do, right? Remember, God created us to be productive. We talked about this last week, that God created us to be creative culture makers, that the gift of productivity actually allows us to image God, right? And so there's a sense in which we need to be productive, genuinely productive, because those are the things that, that build culture, that provide for our families, that, that help us become um, contributors and shapers of the world that we live in and want to live in, right? Now, the second quadrant right below it, though, is the shadow quadrant. This is the area of false productivity. These things feel productive, but they're not. They are, in fact, distractions. They are wasted energy, wasted time. They're urgent, but they're not important. These are going to be things um, like some, possibly most, email. You guys have your email set to push notifications on your phone? You know what I'm talking about? It's like beeps, twitters trills every single time an email comes through. 
how do you do when your phone makes noises? Do you just ignore it? It's so easy to ignore. As soon as your phone makes a noise, what do you do? You grab it and you look at it. It's urgent. That's it. Ringing phones, crying babies, little things that go beep. I mean, they're urgent. They set something off in you that says, pay attention to me, right? Most of our email and most of our internet usage, while it may seem to be productive, is in fact robbing us of genuine productivity. It's a waste of time. The demands of our idols. Previous sermon. I'm going to tell you to go back to it, okay? But, but let's say you have a success idol and you feel this incredible need to get this report done and to have a fancy folder title on it so that when you turn it in, your boss will look at you and say, you're a winner. That's a demand of your idol, right? Your need to make sure your kids look perfect when you go out in public. Otherwise, people may not look up to you. They may not, that approval idol, right? That demand is incredibly urgent, but it's not important. Interruptions that simply come into our daily lives. How do you tell the difference between something that's important and not important? You ask a very simple question. What happens if I don't get it done? What happens if I don't get it done? If there are no consequences, it's not important. It's pretty obvious, right? If you didn't answer 80% of your emails, what would happen? I'm guessing not much. It's urgent. It's not important. It robs you of productivity. It robs you of creative culture building. It's a waste. Third quadrant, right? Right across from it. This is the quadrant of um, false rest. Things that are not urgent and not important. It is the quadrant of false rest, which is death to your soul. What are the things that go in that quadrant? Facebook, Twitter. If I were to log the amount of hours you put in on Facebook, only you know what the answer would be. It's not urgent. (laughs) There's nothing on Facebook that's urgent, right? Candy Crush is not going to go away. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, no, I didn't win my jewel. Uh, Yeah, that's not really urgent, okay? It's not that important. How many Facebook discussions did you get into that literally really made a difference in the world? You ever been in a Facebook argument that produced anything worthwhile? Anyone? Ever? I don't think it ever happened, right? Now, I'm not saying Facebook is evil. I'm not saying it's bad. I've reconnected with tons of people on Facebook. I enjoy interacting on Facebook, but I want you to see that this is, in fact, not rest. See, these are the things that we actually turn to to rest because these are the things that we turn to to stop working. These are the things that we turn to to escape from our lives. Facebook, Twitter, internet. You know what the number one addiction? I read this recently. It was interesting. Number one addiction in America not pornography, the internet itself, just the internet. We are so wired, we never get away from it. If you have two spare moments, what do you do? If you're the typical American, you grab your phone, you pull it out, you start checking Facebook, you check the scores, you look at the news, you start surfing 
you look at Wikipedia, you watch a YouTube video, the internet has become a source of death. It, when you walk, you spend, however many hours you spend on the internet when you walk away, how do you feel? More refreshed? More rejuvenated? I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You walk away more drained, more tired, more stressed because that was usually time you should have spent in productivity, right? Instead of being productive, you need an escape. And, and so you actually walk away more stressed, right? Escapist entertainment. Escapist entertainment are things that we simply turn to for mindlessness. They, they're, they're things that we watch, YouTube videos, Netflix, holy cow. Never-ending stream of mindless entertainment, right? Every TV show, every movie, every... I got Netflix, right? I'm not saying it's evil. I'm saying that it is evil when we turn to it for the wrong reason. The fourth quadrant, things that are not urgent but are truly important, is in fact the quadrant of rest and renewal. When we're talking about being diligent to enter into that rest, when we're talking about working hard to enter into Sabbath rest, these are the things that most get neglected and are most needful. Why do they get neglected? Because they're not urgent. And a lot of times they don't offer you the quick satisfaction of, oh, wow, somebody responded to my Facebook post. I feel important, right? There's something about the non-urgent, non-important things that, 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 they're like sugar, right? No nutritional value, but they give you a little bit of a rush. You move up into this quadrant. These are things that, that tend not to give you the immediate rush, but they give you the long-term nourishment. That's why you have to be intentional to engage them. These are going to be things like reading your Bible and praying. Most followers of Christ would admit that reading their Bible and praying are important, how many of us actually do it on a daily basis? You know why? Because we don't sense it as urgent. Until a crisis comes into our life, until our marriage starts falling apart, until there's a health crisis, until we suddenly feel this tremendous need of God, and then all of a sudden the urgency rises. I need to spend time in the Word. I need to pray. The urgency was there all along. We just didn't notice it because we needed it. It's like saying, man, I'm dying. I better eat something. Physical exercise. That doesn't sound very spiritual. <laughs> it is. You were created in the image of God, but you were created to be a human, right? Not an angel. And as a human, you were designed to, in fact, live in a human body. We are one of the most sedentary people ever, right? We, we ride escalators, Instead of taking steps, we sit in a cubicle and look at a screen. For us to be productive, we don't go out and build a fence. We don't go out and take care of animals. We don't go out and raise crops. We manipulate information. I'm not saying that's bad, but it does take its toll on simply being human. Community and mission. We are one of the most networked people ever and one of the loneliest and most isolated people ever. We measure our community by the number of Facebook friends we have, by the number of Twitter followers we have. And in the process, we are getting more and more separated from genuine human interaction and community. Genuine life on life, knowing people and being known, loving and being loved. I, look it up, you guys. This is not Christian research. This is 
human research. This is a crisis in our culture today. We are one of the most isolated people. We're dying. We're more connected to people than we've ever been, and we're dying for genuine community. Mission. Mission, very simply, is following God on His mission as He redeems and restores. These are things that are genuinely important, eternally important, but they're not urgent. To pursue Sabbath rest means to become intentional with the way we order our lives. Because in the end, everything we do in our life is the result of what we believe about God. If you are not pursuing Sabbath rest, if you are not reading your Bible, if you are not living a community, if you are not walking in mission and instead are spending eight hours a day on Facebook, that tells you something about what you believe about God. You don't believe He is genuinely satisfying. You don't believe that He is the one that is in fact the lover of your soul, the one who can refresh you, rebuild you, renew you. It's a disobedience that flows from a lack of faith. To pursue this is going to be incredibly challenging because we're enslaved to our distractions. We are yoked to them. If we weren't enslaved, it'd be easy to make this change, wouldn't it? It'd be easy to just stop doing the distractions, easy to stop spending time on the internet, easy to stop wasting It's not easy because we are yoked to the wrong things. And that's why God has to give us the gift of repentance so that we can see that we are in fact promised something eternally delightful in the person and the work of Christ. And our work is not to earn it. Our work is to enter into it by repenting of of our idols and repenting from the things that we turn to that aren't God and instead renewing our delight in God and in His delight of us. Now, you know, again, a, a practical. Where do movies fit on this? Some of you automatically, you legalists especially, are going to be like, oh, that's false rest, that's death, no movies. Right? Wrong! Not all movies are escapist. Good movies, good literature, those are works of culture that can, in fact, inform us about what it means to be human and what it means to love God. A good movie can, in fact, be part of a beautiful day of Sabbath. A good book can, in fact, be part of a beautiful day of Sabbath. A good cup of coffee, a great Danish, a nice walk in the sun. Here's the thing, if we're doing it with gratitude, because gratitude points our hearts to God, the giver of the gift, instead of the gift. We're not looking to the Danish, right? The Danish isn't what gives me rest. It's the God of the Danish who gives me rest, right? And I enjoy the Danish to the glory of the God who created Danishes, or at least the culture that allows me to enjoy it, right? Here's what I want you to catch. We don't want to become legalists. This is the right activity. This is the wrong one. I better just go read my Bible all day because that's spiritual, right? Even reading your Bible can be down here in false rest. If you're doing it to impress God, it will rob you of life, not give you life. We read the Bible to discover the God of delight, not to impress Him, not to put in our time, not so that, oh, I had my quiet time today, I feel better about myself. That's not what it's about. It's about renewing our delight in God. You guys, we need to create rhythms, life rhythms of renewal. That means daily. 
That means weekly. That means monthly. We need to look at our schedules. What does it look like for me on a monthly and potentially even on a yearly basis to create space where I can renew my delight in God? I encourage you to take a a Sabbath day weekly. And as a church, we're going to make some choices. The leadership team and I have been talking about this. If you're in community groups, we're actually going to help. Um, Every seventh week is going to become a Sabbath week for community groups. So every seventh week, we're going to, you can still meet if you want to. You can do what you want. But we're going to tell you you're free on that week to, to create space. And if what you need that week is isolation, you introverts, like you just need time alone, you nature people, you need to go ride your bike on the trails or what, do it. But do it in gratitude to God, not to escape from the pressure, but to renew your delight in the God who delights in you. On a yearly basis as a church, the seventh month of July is going to become our Sabbath month. We're not going to do any new initiatives in that month if we can at all help it unless God basically tells us we have to. That's going to be a down month for the church. Those are things that we're doing to help create rhythms of rest so that we can renew our delight. All right, I'm going to make a handout available to you. It's out at the connection point. Um, It's basically the four quadrants. And I would love for you to swing by and pick one up. It's not a perfect tool, but it is a good one to sit down and actually look at your life and think about honestly. So maybe you need to do it alone because if you're doing it with somebody, you might want to lie. But honestly, sit down and say, where do I spend my time? Where do I, where is, what's eating up my time? Write it down and then pray about it and ask God to give you a vision for what it means for you to spend your time in the areas of productivity and genuine rest and renewal instead of in the quadrants of distraction and death. That's what it means to become intentional with the use of our time to pursue God. All right, we're going to go on time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the overhead and ask you to pray and do some business with God. Let God speak to you in this time. We'll take communion in a moment, but for now, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God who gives us the gift of rest. It was never your intent that we would be so driven by our obsessions, by our idols, by our culture, that we are stretched to the point of breaking. We are stretched to the point where we simply don't even know what it means to have quiet moments of delight and joy. That is not the way you created us, and that is not your intention for us. And I thank you that you paid the price to win for us a rest we could never earn for ourselves. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us enough to die for us, to take our place on the cross, to take our sin, to rise again so that you could invite us into your glory. And even now, you invite us into your rest.